Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message comes from Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate the day when the Christian church began. On that day, shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, all the elements came together to ignite and start a movement bigger than any single person there could imagine, a movement that is still going today. Pastor David Cartwright breaks down the elements necessary to ignite a Christian revival as seen on Pentecost and calls for us all to bring these elements together today in our own lives. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I invite you to open your scripture to the book of Acts. We'll read there from chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they were all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, in these moments, help us so that our hearts and our minds are quiet and open before you. Help us to hear your voice and grant the leading of your Holy Spirit that your voice would be what is heard through me. Give me grace to speak words of your truth, to speak them in simplicity, with clarity, that you may accomplish in and through us your good and perfect will. For all good things that we receive and experience now, we give you the praise. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Most of you are familiar with the idea of something being ignited. To ignite something in its most simple meaning really means to, to spark, to cause something to catch fire, or in a, in a grand way, maybe to explode. The image that may come first to our minds would be that of an internal combustion engine, something that most of us have uh, utilized probably today, if not in the most recent days, unless you have one of those new electric cars. But the designers who, uh, who lay out an internal combustion engine and the, uh, the manufacturers who put one together create an environment in which something powerful happens. They, they design it so that the right uh, conditions are created, the right mixture of fuel and air, uh, and, and in that mixture being compressed to just the right amount. Th those conditions are created so that when a spark is introduced into those conditions, something powerful happens, and that's what drives your car. That, that spark, that ignition that is introduced into just the right environment creates something very powerful. On the day of Pentecost, roughly 2,000 years ago, something was ignited. We're going to look at that in just a moment. I realize that as we enter into this day, the, the day in which the, the church was born, uh, by the way, happy birthday, church, we get into some things that uh, tend to always cause doctrinal differences between people. Uh, certain streams of Christianity have some theologies that are at odds with one with the other. I have no interest in, in chasing all of those kinds of things. What I really want, and, and, and by the way, I really don't have any interest today of, uh, of accomplishing some great teaching about the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's good for us to, to read and to hear once again what the Scripture does teach us. But to me, the more important thing by far is, is not learning about the Holy Spirit, but encountering the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is, was always and is, a gift to the body of believers to empower us for ministry. And so the greatest goal we could have today is not to learn about the Holy Spirit, but to encounter the Holy Spirit, to understand what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in us and to put ourselves in tune with that power again that God might use us for the greatest of purposes, that is the building of His kingdom. As we get into Acts chapter 2, and really <clears throat> what I want to do is kind of look at that whole chapter. Two, two things that jump out to me in that chapter. The chapter basically breaks down like this. You have the introduction of it, which we just read, the, the events of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pentecost was that Jewish holiday, and so you have these people, uh, Jewish believers, whether they were uh, Jews by birth or proselytes to Judaism. They have done what would be, would have been expected of adult male Jews. They have 
they've uh, ex- experienced the pilgrimage coming into Jerusalem for that week, so they, they may celebrate together. And so Jews from all these different places are in this one place. The conditions are created in just the right way. And, and God is going to use those the, the, that first group of Jesus' followers, and he's going to introduce into that environment this spark, this ignition that explodes into something beautiful called the church. And so after this introduction, you have Peter's great sermon. We're not going to take time to read that, but I would encourage you to do that. You're going to see how with clarity and boldness, Peter speaks to these people who don't understand what's going on. And Peter, who for the for most of his career, if you will, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, didn't really grasp what was going on. But here he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks up with boldness and he proclaims to them that this is God's action and it's Jesus who is to be proclaimed, the one that they had put to death and now he is, he is Lord and Christ over them. And, 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 the re, and the crowds respond to him, what should we do? And he says, uh, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And about 3,000 people that day, one day, what pastor wouldn't yearn for that day? 3,000 people baptized and, and joined the church. And, and, and off we go, and we've been running ever since. And then at the last part of chapter 2, you have a little segment there where it, it describes briefly the, the conditions of that first generation of the church, what it looked like in its original state. And there are two things there that I want to kind of draw out. And they revolve around the phrase, and they began. I want to show you where I see that phrase in those two places. And they began. <clears throat> the first place is a place we've already read in chapter 2, verse 4, where in my translation of the Bible it says, and they, that, so that's the first two words of the sentence, and then it's, there, there are two statements, if you will, that follow after that. The first statement is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the empowering. That's the, the visual that we have of those tongues of fire, uh, the Spirit resting visually in power upon the heads of those first uh, believers, filling them up with the, with the Holy Spirit. And then the second statement that is made there is that they began to speak with other tongues. So yes, I know you have to parse the sentence and, and put the words together, but if you would go with me for a moment, what I want to focus on is, and they began to speak with other tongues. Yes, I know that puts me in the water where we as Christians often get mixed up with each other. Well, you're, you know, speaking in tongues, and do you really want to go there, Pastor? Yes, I do. Because I simply want for us to understand what happened on that day, because it's important for us. It's important for us, regardless of what denominational sign is hanging outside your building, or if it's a non-denominational church, it doesn't matter what label you put upon yourselves. What happened that day applies to all of the body of Christ throughout the ages in all places and all times and all stripes. 
they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, what, what happened? In verse 4, when it says that they spoke with other tongues, in the original language, it's just the, the glossa. It just means that a tongue is kind of a generic term. If you look a bit further into the reading, once you get down to verse 8, there is the question that is being raised. How is it that we each hear them in our own language? And so it becomes more clear in the original language, the word isn't glossa anymore, it's dialectos. We get the word dialect. It's a known variation of a language. And that's what becomes amazing to these people. It's not that they were hearing somebody speak in tongues that they didn't understand. It's the fact that these Galileans, and you have to understand that when they used that term, it wasn't really a term of great adoration. It was kind of a term of looking down your nose. These aren't these aren't educated people. They're just fishermen. They're, they're blue-collar workers. They are, they are the, the less educated group of people, these Galileans. How are they speaking in all these different known dialects so that we all hear intelligibly in a way that can be understood the mighty acts of God. That was the amazing thing that happened that day. So what God accomplished was, first of all, the ignition of a witness, a testimony to His mighty acts in Jesus Christ. That's the part that we need to hear. God gives birth to a witness. He ignites the testimony of Jesus Christ in and through His church. And that's what applies to all of us. If you are a Christian, if you've been baptized into the church, baptized into Christ, you've stood up, you've professed Christ as Lord and Savior, you have, you have willingly become part of a body that has a witness. And the expectation is that when you join that, you join the witness. And I realize that so many of us probably feel like we don't have much of a witness. I, I don't know how to do that. Well, whether you feel like you know how to do it or not, the fact is that you were given a witness. And that witness is not only historic because it leads back to this apostolic age, to Jesus Christ, but it's also personal because it is a witness that talks about your transformation of life. And that's where we get in, you know, sometimes we, uh, we, we uh, try to learn how to make our witness better. We have people teach us strategies for witnessing. All of those things are good. But what Pentecost might do would be to challenge us to take it a deeper level. It's not just about learning uh, skills, if you will, on how to make our witness better. It's challenging us to go back to the point where our witness has power in the first place. Back to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because 
If it were not for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, no witness would have power. The Holy Spirit was the reason that the witness had power that day. And so first, the first thing that God gives us is a, is a witness. This, this speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost is to accomplish the testimony to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We stand in the line of that. But for the moment, let's move on, because there is another, and they began, in this second chapter. You need to turn over to uh, verses, the latter verses, really verse 45 is where I find it. But I want to read for you briefly uh, that, that whole section, if you will, really starting at verse 42. So just hear these descriptions, if you will, of uh, how Luke the writer describes the early church. He says, beginning in verse 42, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and the breaking of the bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why was the Lord adding to their number day by day those who were being saved? Because of what you just heard described before that. Because of the environment, again, that God had created in the early church. And there in verse 45, in my translation of the Bible, you have that phrase, and they began. I will admit that for most of you, if you're looking at that scripture right now, in your translation, you probably do not see the word began. In my translation, that word began is italicized to clue us in that the word itself is not there in the original language. But the fact is, it's implied. And here's how it's implied. In that sentence, when it says they began, reading from my text, and they began selling their property and possessions, sharing them with all as anyone might have need, it is suggesting to us that what is being described there is new. They weren't already doing that. And in fact, it's reasonable to extend that thought over everything that has been described there. It's not that nobody ever went to a neighbor's house to have a meal or some of the other things that, that were described. But the, the degree to which this new environment was being created and, and happening was significant. It was significant enough for Luke, the gospel writer, to put it on paper so that we have that snapshot of this new environment happening to a greater degree, things that were happening that weren't happening before. Why was it significant? Because people looked at it and said, there's something different about that. Those people are living life together in a way that we usually don't live life together. It's unique. The early church father by the name of Tertullian picked up on that. 
Tertullian lived, lived around the end of the second to the beginning of the third century. He was from the city of Carthage in North Africa, which was still part of the Roman Empire. He was a great writer about the early church. He was a great apologetic, not meaning he's saying, he, I'm sorry for the church, but he was a great defender of the Christian belief in the face of those who were uh, hostile toward it, towards those who didn't understand it. And one of the things that Tertullian thought was a great apologetic for the early church was just what Luke describes here in these later verses of Acts chapter 2. That unique life together that these believers were living. <clears throat> Tertullian even summed it like this. He, in his mind, he could see the pagans, which was the word he would use for uh, non-believers who were hostile to some degree toward the church. He could picture in his mind pagans looking at the life of the church, saying to themselves, see how they love one another. And it's very likely that you've heard that phrase uh, floated out in one place or another. That's where that phrase is born, from Tertullian, from his writings. He pictured those pagans, those unbelievers, looking at the church saying, but see how they love one another. And you know that he didn't dream that up himself. He just borrowed it from Jesus. And you'll remember that that's what Jesus told his disciples. Recorded in, in John chapter 13, verse 35, when he's told his disciples to love one another, even as I have loved you, love one another. And in verse 35, Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And Tertullian picked up on that, and he said, these unbelievers are going to look at the life of the church, and they're going to say, but see, of all the other criticisms they could have about the doctrine or the theology or the things that they don't understand, they're going to look at the life of the church, and they're going to say, but see how they love one another. And that will be a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. And, and so in these two places in Acts chapter 2, you have what is offered as a, as a new thing, and they began. And the, and the two things are not disconnected. There's a witness by the Word, and there's a witness by the life together. But it began by the power of the Holy Spirit moving into an environment in, when the, in, in which the conditions were were created, but God's, God's power comes in and ignites this new thing that explodes into the body that we know as the church. And it continues to reach all the lands, all the places, the four corners of the earth. It just continues to move out. But here's something important about it. And that is the fact that we have to remember that all of the power for the work of the church goes back to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus reminded his disciples of this. If, if they were going to do anything, they had to be connected to the source of power. In the 15th chapter of John, you might look back there real quickly. It's not much of a turn from the book of Acts. In John chap chapter 15, Jesus starts talking to them uh, using the image of the vine and the branches. He said, uh, I am the vine, uh, my father is the vine dresser. All of those who uh, don't bear fruit, he cuts off. Those who bear fruit, he prunes so that they will bear more fruit. 
And he also talks about abiding in him, that word that always takes us back to Jesus and his disciples, to abide. And again, remember what abide means. Abide means to stay in one place, to hang out, if you will, to not be moving quickly here and then moving on to something else. Abide means staying, remaining, hanging out, being connected for a significant period of time. And Jesus there in John 15 verse 5 says something that could almost be offensive to us if we wanted to be offended. Because he says in, in verse uh, 5 there, he says, uh, For those who abide in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. And then he says, For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now think, if you will, about that last comment. When Jesus says to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. You might get offended at that. Was Jesus saying, well, I'm some kind of flunky, that I have no ability to go do things on my own? Well, no, he's not, he's, not, uh, he's not being derogatory toward us. But he's simply reminding us that, that when it comes to kingdom-level work, it all depends on the true source of power. We can't do, none of us in the greatest uh, level of our education, the skills that we might have, the, the human gifts that we might have, the influence that we might have, we cannot do kingdom work. Kingdom work is only done by kingdom power, and kingdom power only comes through the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, you have to abide in me, you have to stay connected to the source of power, because if you are not connected to the source of power, you will not be able to accomplish anything for the kingdom. Some of you who are at least my age, if not older, may remember an old show called Truth or Consequences. Some of you uh, younger folks may not remember that show, but I remember as a child watching that show with my parents. In, in the day that I was watching it, Truth or Consequences was hosted by Bob Barker. I know there were other hosts before that. But it's funny how there's one episode of that show that I always seem to remember with clarity. I don't remember any other episodes of the show, but I remember this one. There was a husband and wife who came up on stage, and they, of course, they were asked a question that they were supposed to not get correct, which they didn't. And so if they didn't get the answer correct, they had to suffer the consequences. And the consequences in this case were that uh, they were given, the, the wife was given a challenge. The husband was taken and placed at the end of a long conveyor belt. He was laid down on a, on a little table or cot there, looking face up directly under the end, one of the ends of this conveyor belt. The other end of this conveyor belt was connected, if you will, to this big machine-looking thing. It had knobs and levers and buttons and dials, flashing lights all over it. And out of that machine, if you will, came cream pies. And there was a cream pie sitting at the near end of that conveyor belt. The wife's challenge was... Once that conveyor belt, once that machine was turned on and that conveyor belt was started moving, to stop that machine before the pie dropped on her husband's face. I have to give credit. 
it really did appear that she was wanting to save her husband. Some of the wives would have just stood back and said, I've got to see this. But they set that thing in motion, lights were flashing and everything, and she starts wildly, I mean, she's just doing everything she can, pulling levers and pressing buttons, turning dials, hoping to get the right combination to stop that conveyor belt. Well, you can imagine at the end of the uh, story, um, she does not stop the conveyor belt. The, the pie falls in her husband's face. They all have a big laugh. And after that happens, uh, the host of the show takes her and he says, I just want to show you uh, that in order to stop the machine, all you would have had to do is just go right around the edge of it and unplug it from the wall. That's all you would have needed to do. I think that in so many ways, we as Christians allow ourselves to get unplugged from the power that is available to us. We don't want to be unplugged, but somehow we get there. And when we are not adequately plugged in to the source of our power, the level of our kingdom work will be extremely low. And we don't want that. We would rather be a part of, of, of new expressions of God's igniting powerful things, kingdom things that are happening around our midst. And so, how do we do that? Well, there's another place in the New Testament in which we get a, a brief commandment, if you will, uh, that, that, that places in Ephesians chapter 5. If you would, just turn over there in your scripture. I know many of you have your Bibles out. Good for you. You get brownie points. Uh, some Someday I'm going to figure out how to turn those brownie points into something substantial for you. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes uh, these words. You find it in verse 18. There's, there's some language around it that's significant. But in verse 18, there is a, uh, a contrast that is given, a, a word picture, if you will. The, the writer says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a very interesting picture, if you will, because we know that when, when any of us drink too much, that which we have drunk, alcohol, starts to have an effect on us. The more we drink, the more we are under the influence of that which we have taken in. The writer wants to use that as a picture. Rather than being filled with some other influence, the writer says, be filled with the influence of the Spirit. In other words, Rather than having something else control you, let the Spirit control you. It's very interesting that the writer does not say, now go out and get filled with the Holy Spirit, because we don't control that. We don't command God to fill us, but rather the language is to see that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. God does the filling, we just avail ourselves to it. Or to use the word picture again, create the circumstances 
so that the Spirit is filling you to the greatest degree possible. We have to remember that the Holy Spirit is not a, a person of the Trinity who comes and goes in our life. Like we, we have Him and then He leaves. And then we have to chase after Him or to seek Him once again to, to come into us. It seems clear to me that when we are baptized, when we come by faith to Jesus Christ, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us in baptism. And God is not a partial giver. When God gives, God gives fully. The question really is, how much are we experiencing what we've been given? Allow me once again to give you a picture. Many of you have smartphones. I know there are at least one or two people in this building who don't have smartphones, but probably most of you do. For many of you, you are not getting the full use of your smartphone. In fact, there are probably people out there who have a, a, a smartphone for which you've paid you know, a few hundred, if not many hundred dollars. I don't know if that grammar was correct, but you know, give me grace. And the only thing you do with it is make phone calls and text messages. You're getting about 5% of the benefit of that smartphone. Do you not know that that smartphone will do all kinds of other things for you? You may say, I don't really care. That's fine. You paid for the phone. Use it to the extent you want. But the truth is that when you bought that phone, you bought all of its capacity. You didn't just buy the features you wanted, you got everything that phone will do. If you only use 5% of its capacity, that's your choice. But you still have it. When God gives us the Holy Spirit, we have all of it. The question is, how much of the Spirit are we, being, are we allowing to be utilized in our life? I don't know about you, but I know personally, I want the Spirit, I want the Spirit to be working more in my life. I don't have to seek for the Spirit to come. I know He's already in there. But I have to avail myself of the things that will allow for that to happen. And it may be that that's kind of what the writer here says afterward when he goes on in Ephesians 5, verse 19, where he says, uh, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. He, he goes back to describing the things that we personally and collectively do on a regular basis, but of worship and fellowship and being in study together, which carries us all the way back to where we were in Acts, to the place where Jesus left his disciples when he ascended. When you look at the end of Luke chapter 24, and the last couple of verses there, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with joy. They were being in fellowship. They were staying together. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, they, they are all together. In Acts chapter 2, it begins, they're all together. 
It is those environments that are created that are conducive to the Holy Spirit working. And so my invitation is simply this. I mean, we can study the Holy Spirit all day long, but studying will not avail us to His power. The truth is that the Spirit is still working to ignite Pentecost moments in the world. And if you look in the book of Acts, you read through the book of Acts, you find Pentecost moments that just keep popping up. When, when the conditions are right, certain people in certain places, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and bam, there's new believers, and bam, there's a new church that, that, that happens. And, and it's just God's Spirit working and working and working. And just because the book of Acts in the Bible came to an end, it doesn't mean the acts of the church have ended. There are still Pentecost moments happening all over the place. And I don't know about you, but I yearn to keep being part of them. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.